Hello and welcome to the Forward Unto Dawn podcast, the show about exploring the lore of the Halo series. I'm David, and I'm joined by my co-host, Danny. Hello. And this episode, we've got a special guest, Penn's Halo. Hi, thanks for having me. We're happy to have you on. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with you, can you give us a rundown of who you are in the community? I actually started off just as a fan of it, kind of become a regular uh, in the uh, podtacular chats. Um, and eventually, I'm actually now a community manager for Focus Fire Chat. Uh, it's cross-community gathering where they discuss lore of multiple games, primarily Destiny, but they do a lot of Halo. Um, and I'm kind of the guy that helps them out with that side of it as well. So uh, just been a fan of the game and the uh, lore behind it uh, ever since I really got into it and uh, can't get enough of it, frankly. Well, that's good because we are a Halo fiction podcast. <laughs> Unfortunate if you did not like it that much. Um, so we gathered you here uh, to join us for a look at Halo Retribution, uh, which came out at the end of August this year. Uh, it's the second Halo novel written by Troy Denning following Halo Last Light, which was released September 2015. So especially in the realm of Halo follow-up books, uh, it's a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, and it serves to continue a lot of the plot points that the previous novel featured. So it's got uh, Blue Team as well as Ferret Team, which is a group of Spartan 3s headed by Oni Agent uh, Veta Lopez. Lopez? Lopez? Lopez. Let's say Lopez. And uh, a bunch of recurring characters uh, aside from the hero's return. Uh, Pence, since we didn't have you on, we were talking about Last Light. Uh, what were your thoughts about it? I did like it. Um, I, I liked, uh, you know, the revisiting back of the Spartan threes, you know, other than them really being in ghost of Onyx and whatnot. I, I overall really enjoyed it. Uh, I think, uh, I enjoy the way Denning writes. Um, it seems that he's able to write the Spartan twos and Spartan threes as, um, in a different manner, which kind of makes sense. And I liked that they introduced a uh, antagonist and caster, and actually didn't kill him off right away. <laughs> yeah, he gets to he gets a Deus Ex Machina ending kind of where uh, the engineer that was the focus of the book comes along and heals him, and yeah. he says, "Oh, well, that's great. I will accept that as a blessing and continue my merry way." Um, and so he shows up in this one as well. Yeah. The other thing I really liked about it is with uh, Gamma Company um, was that he didn't that Denning didn't shy away from the fact that they had extra augmentations done to them, and he kind of brought that out in in Last Light. You know, and it was interesting seeing um, augmented uh, Spartans starting to lose it a little bit because they didn't have their smoothers with them. So, yes. although that gets pretty quickly hand-waved in this book. Yeah. They got uh, just... subdermal implants that last longer, and so it's okay. Um, uh-huh. But I guess it, it's, it makes sense after they nearly had one of them go crazy last time that they would think about improving their regimen slightly. Yeah, very true. Yeah, so I think I liked Last Light well enough. I think definitely appeals to i would say the fan that prefers the more nylundian 
uh, style of writing. Um, he definitely focuses more on Denning. Definitely focuses more on, I mean, following up on the Spartan twos and Spartan threes, which were Nyland's realm for a long time. And then also, there's a lot of uh, small technical details, uh, which I think appeals to a certain type of fan that uh, he carries over. So, going into from Last Light into Retribution, what did you think about this overall? Again, I, th- I think it was, I really enjoyed it as a, like, second look. Um, kind of liked how it, they, they're continuing this part of the storyline in it and how it, it kind of ties in a little bit into uh, the beginnings of Halo 5 uh, with Argent Moon and, and whatnot. And um, I like what he's, I, I like the way he's presenting Intrepid Eye. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and who's kind of realized that humanity is now like, humanity's one, it's in, going to be the inheritors of the mantle and um, is working towards making sure they're prepared to fully manage it, I guess is the best way I can, I can describe it. Um, I also like, I mean, again, I like that fact that Castor is still around. I just, I just I think him and Atriox, not to get off the subject, but him and Atriox seem to represent a different kind of, uh, Yorohane roots that we, we haven't seen. And, uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So Intrepid Eye was the foreigner AI they dug up in last light and she she has an interesting inversion i guess you could say of the didax arc in that she realizes that humans are the reclaimers and rather than fight that she kind of uh decides that it's up to her to make sure that humanity's ready and that's not necessarily great for everyone as we'll find (laughs) out um but she's got her own logic that we would say is twisted logic but it makes sense to her and so we'll talk more about that. What did you think about the book overall, Danny? I didn't think much of it, to be honest. I thought it was the most generic Halo book that I've ever read. It did nothing different. Weird AI doing weird AI things? Check. Boring military stuff? Check. Random acronyms being thrown around? Check. It's It was dire. I didn't enjoy it. I, I Sorry, um... Denning reminds me, and Nyland does as well, reminds me a lot of like the Tom Clancy type of techno thriller novel that is something I've always loved. So I guess that's why I haven't, whenever I see a book that's written in that fashion, it, it, it appeals to me a lot. And I, that's what, part of the reason why I, I think I like the way he writes it. But I can definitely understand that it's not for everybody, that style. Well, and I, I can understand where you feel where you feel it comes off generic. However, I think that one of the things that uh, Denning's books thus far have done that no other Halo books have really done is that he tries to introduce elements of a mystery into it. In Last Light, there was... I thought it was kind of circuitous because they were like asking, who is killing off all these people? And they had the idea, oh, well, what if it's a rogue Spartan? But really it was really obvious to the reader that it's obviously this ai um and in this one i think they did a good job of advancing the mystery because you don't know how it ties together um until much closer to the end so it's 
more suspenseful, but also more enjoyable just because we don't have to wait for, uh, it's good at making sure that we don't have to wait too long for characters to catch up to where we are as the readers. Um, because even if we're the omni- omniscient readers and we're getting multiple perspectives, it kind of is annoying when obviously why can't they figure this out? Um, so I think it was successful in that respect. All right. Any other thoughts before we could dive into it? The only other thing I would probably say is, is that, and this may be something we touch on in a little bit is, um, for me, the way Intrepidai is portrayed, it seems to parallel the way Cortana is portrayed a bit in Halo 5. Um, whether you like that portrayal or not, notwithstanding, it just seems that there's a, that it's, it's parallel, it's somewhat parallel paths in their actions uh, to yeah. an extent. Yeah, they, they both are assuming a sort of shepherd role, but in the sense of I know what's best for you and mm-hmm. I'm fine with breaking a few eggs to make my reclaimer omelet. Um, yep. But yeah, so let's dig in. Um, obviously, there are spoilers for the book that we're talking about this entire episode, so you've been warned. Go and read it first if you care, and if you don't, uh, stay tuned. So it uh, starts out, one of the nice things is, as a lore person, I'm happy that now they are basically, I guess it's a concession of the fact that the universe has gotten so big and they're telling stories across such a big gap of time, but they now specifically tell you in a lot of the books when exactly this takes place. And so we learn right off the bat that this is December 2553 when it starts out, uh, five months after Halo Last Light. Uh, and two months after the uh, Fractures short story, A Necessary Truth. So right there, <laughs> you know when <laughs> this is taking place, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it opens with uh, the commissioned ferret team, Spartan 3s and Veta Lopez, uh, doing a sort of operation uh, with a gun runner. And this is the setup. Uh, they're going to have the Spartan 2s show up to try and build up their cred that they're these guys who have gotten hold of nukes that they aren't supposed to have from the UNSC. The thing I wrote that I noted mostly about this section is they, they mentioned that the Spartan 3s, because they're still relatively young, uh, so they have to put some other effort into their disguises. They are described as zone outs, which is the first time, like, yes, they have, like, punks in Halo, even in the 26th <laughs> century, like, with weird piercings and stuff. Cool. Um but it's all an act, and uh, the Spartans show up, they start wrecking things, and a bunch of jackals uh, pop out and offer a ferret team an escape route, uh, which they take. No, I, I also, one of the things that kind of s- stuck out to me is that it had a very, you know, I mean, the uh, the jackals are pirates after all, but it had a very pirate feel to it. Like, this, the the bar was a kind of like a quote-unquote safe haven for them thing like a like neutral territory that you you didn't try to start a fight there actually i'm i'm totally forgetting was it set on venezia the beginning or did they just mention going there later no this was on uh no yeah it was on venezia yeah so uh, new time that comes back that uh Venezia was introduced in the Kilo 5 trilogy as a colony that sort of got left behind by the UNSC uh, with the fall of the outer colonies. And they were doing fine by themselves and really did not appreciate the UNSC coming back uh, (laughs) and trying to reestablish itself. 
Um, and that's actually uh, one of the big things that the this book emphasizes is that um, they specifically talk about in the, the years since the Covenant Wars ended that piracy is a huge deal. Um, and it ties in with some of the stuff we've seen recently, um, along with uh, Smoke and Shadow, that as much as the UNSC in the post-war landscape is now the top dog, sort of by default, because everyone else knocked themselves down, uh, they don't really control as much um, as they once did. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, in the games and in the early novels, they talk about how humanity was almost totally beat. Um, I mean, they lost all of the outer colonies for the most part. Uh, and the inner colonies had been savage as well. So it's a good representation of, you know, essentially, you know, kind of like struggling to get back. Yeah. And so that's where they, they've planted these uh, fake nukes that are basically bait to lure out um, this gunrunner, Nieto. Um, but the jackals who uh, grab them in the process uh, are interested in them as well, and they are totally happy to kill them if necessary. <laughs> uh, and so they, they plan on using... This was a nice detail uh, that they've got uh, a nerve gas or something, basically, a chemical warfare that kills everything pretty much except uh, Kigyar which they don't ultimately get to use, but that was a nice detail uh, that I don't think I had seen before, that we rarely have species-specific um, pathogens or weapons coming into play. I think the last time we saw something like that was in Nightfall. Yeah, was in Nightfall. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, in the Kilo 5 trilogy, they have Onis trying to figure out a way of uh, creating a blight uh, for Sangheili grain. That's right, yeah. Biological weapons come up in a big way in this book, as we'll discover. All right, so we get uh, into the the meat of the book uh, comes up that there's a question of whether the Keepers of the One Freedom, which are Castor's, uh, Castor the Jirohane's faction, uh, whether they're behind the kidnapping of an admiral, a UNSC admiral and her family, and we get a sort of flashback sequence, uh, very CSI with uh, Lopez examining the crime scene. Uh, Osmond shows up, who at this point, she's a rear admiral uh, and head of Beta 5 Division Section 3. So she's moving on up. Uh, I don't think we've gotten a specific date when she becomes head of Oni, but this is before that. And we also get the the... <laughs> Slightly inelegant, but you have to do it. Uh, name dropping of the banished come in here. Um, do we think this is a banished attack? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I also liked um, in this section how you can see that the Spartan threes, Olivia and them, are kind of picking up the uh, as investigators to an extent because there are times that they are speaking either to Osman or to Lopus and. It seems like the, uh, the uh, Lopez's uh, investigative skills are being passed on, so they're yeah. becoming more than just soldiers, Spartans. And I think soldiers. they they do a good job in this book of uh, solidifying their roles. Um, so Mark is the weapons guy. Uh, they have Ash doing surveillance, and Olivia is sort of the tech hacker of the group, which you always need the tech hacker person. 
mm-hmm. especially in your sci-fi. So they, they do get to do, I think, especially compared to the Spartan 2s, of which only Fred really gets to do anything significant. Um, Linda and Kelly are pretty much in the back burner as just characters that are there, I would say, which, depending on if you really like Linda or Kelly, would probably be a knock against this book. Um, but compared to the Spartan 2s, Spartan 3s definitely have much clearer roles and you do get a lot more uh, with their interplay with Lopez, which I think is a lot more different than we usually see with Spartans and their commanders um, because she is now Oni, but she was not at one point. She was civilian on uh, the planet Gao, a uh, civilian investigator. And they she has this fine line of being the the mother figure for people who never really had it. They were all war orphans, so uh, it would make sense that they would kind of latch on to uh, parental is she, is she not considered a civilian contractor in Illinois? Not, not military? They made that, def- that specific definition that she was still civilian inside the organization? Yeah, which is, there? I believe so, which is one of the the details that comes up, especially in this book, is that she has a much less she does not approach things from the military standpoint that everyone else does where they're totally willing to all right well people are going to die here but we've got the mission she is fine ultimately taking lives but that doesn't mean she's happy with it which plays sort of into her arc by the end of the book so they decide in investigating they decide to figure out if it's the keepers behind everything and leads to them being on this jackal ship which is working ultimately for the keepers and the jackals miscalculate think that they gassed them all and they didn't and they all get taken out really quickly (laughs) so it's not even worth mentioning the jackals hard to pronounce name because they're dead 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 Uh, but they lead them to the keepers uh, base which is Salvation Base on this planet uh, with uh, foreigner ruins there. Um, and meanwhile, while the Spartan 3s are going in as the frontline team, the Spartan 2s are piggybacking um, in the back, basically being support. Um, Fred gets an AI, Damon, which I believe is one of the first dumb AIs we've gotten in a really long time. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I can't think of another, I mean, the last... We had to have another one in, after Deja, didn't we? We had Deja. And, and, we had um, Wellesley. We had the, I think, the AI in the Halo Wars Genesis comics. Oh, yeah. And we had the superintendent, which doesn't really count because he's Virgil by the time we meet him. Mm. So they're definitely, it's one of those things where they never really clarified exactly what the difference between smart AIs and dumb AIs is except for apparently they have a less personality, which you think in certain circumstances would be a plus rather than a negative. And unfortunately, this book doesn't really detail that more, but it's interesting to get another Spartan besides the Master Chief with an AI in his head, um, especially since uh, they, they talk about, at one point, uh, Intrepid Eye basically hijacked uh, Fred's suit in the last novel. So he's understandably a little squirrely about having another AI in there, <laughs> uh, which leads to some nice interactions, especially when he's basically trying to bluff the AI, and the AI points out, dude, I can tell if you're lying. <laughs> I'm in your head. Mm. Yeah, that that was some pretty good sequences, and just that interaction, you know, I mean, usually when 
when I think of a Spartan interacting with an AI, you immediately think of Chief and Cortana and how it seemed like the two of them picked up right away. You know, there, there really wasn't a lot of oddness, at least at first, mm-hmm. or they got over it real quick. And, and they're kind of showing it that even in the Spartan 2s, that kind of thing is not really the average. So, Yeah. And so then we get, uh, we shift over to Argent Moon, which I know a lot of people, when they came out with a synopsis, were like, wait, this seems like this is happening way, like four years way too early before the events of Halo 5. Like, what's going on? Um, but we find out that uh, on Argent Moon is Intrepid Eye after the events on Gao. And they very much give a, like, kind of HAL 9000 crossed with Magneto's prison thing going on when you first meet her. She's supposed to be in this room disconnected from everything, but of course she isn't because they keep on underestimating AIs. And that leads me to the observation that the UNSC has terrible info security. <laughs> like, they they need to learn how to air gap stuff because wireless is just terrible. So they, they it turns out that... Uh, and this this plays out nicely that uh, the uh, station commander, Craddock, comes in to talk with her and reveals that basically she was not being forthcoming to anyone except her to accept him because she realized he was the dumbest guy that she could manipulate. Uh, and she basically makes him to the station commander and then promptly blackmails him into giving her more access, which does not go well as you would expect. Um, but we learn that basically she's been pulling a bunch of strings behind uh, the scenes and that dark moon, which came up uh, in the halo fracture short story as this shadowy, a non-government organization that's been pulling all this talent and doing all these shady operations is actually basically run by Intrepid Eye from her prison, which I thought was in not at all where the <laughs> where Dark Moon was going to go originally. Uh, so I have to give props for Denning for throwing a curveball there. Yeah, that was one of those moments where, like, wait a minute, and I mean, you you, you always knew, or it was always seems to be implied that. Forerunner AI were significantly seemed significantly more powerful than most even most human uh, smart AIs. So um, you really see it with that. Just that the like the and the fact that this is four years before the opening of Halo Five. It, it's the ability to play a long game as well. It, uh, so yeah, and I, honestly, that's the how advanced foreigner AIs are versus human AIs has always been something I've thought was a little dodgy. Um, Leaving aside stuff like where the fans complain that Dr. Halsey knocked down a contender class AI briefly. Yeah, let's not talk about that one. (laughs) But even even aside from that, there's there's stuff like how Cortana is able to to fight off mendicant biases shard in Halo 2 or... um, how she's basically able to run around in the Didax ship and he calls her an evolved Ancilla. So it's never exactly been clear exactly what the power levels are. Um, and I think that Denning's actually done a lot better job than anyone else in showing, no, they can, they can go toe to toe with smart AIs generally and can basically manipulate them if they need to. 
uh, especially um, of an AI of Intrepid's class. Uh, not to just to double back a little bit, the fact that Intrepid AI essentially ate Wendell in Last Light. Um, I mean, a human human AI. I think Wendell was they're on what a third third generation or something like that. Smart AI. I think it's one of the more advanced ones, and just took them apart. Um, I mean, it's kind of a shocking thing. It's like, oh wait a minute, these the forerunners really were more advanced, and it's kind of a really big expression of that. Yeah, and it wraps around nicely in that intrepid doesn't do anything so obvious as she did in last light she's playing much more of the behind the scenes villain um she even basically just pulls a like jedi mind trick on the argent moon's ai like you did not see me nothing's going on here carry on Uh, so that was a nice evolution of her of her mindset and basically her approach from the two books Okay, so then as we move back to Salvation Base, uh, the Spartans land, and there's this Forerunner Grotto there. One thing I noted at this point, it's kind of ridiculous that everyone speaks English and or can understand all these Covenant dialects. (laughs) (laughs) Because at one point they mention uh, Castor, for instance, has a translation disc, but there's a lot of talk about characters who apparently are unaided and still being able to figure out what for instance the Kigyar are saying which given that the Kigyar have beaks and make raspy sounds seems really hard to imagine there's a there's a moment here where they also mention oh well because they've got beaks the Kigyar can't really pronounce this word which I appreciate in that it's a nod to the realities of how different speech would be between different alien species, but also they really can't. It's like the elites. Like there's no way they could make human speech. Like they don't have cheeks. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I remember reading something like the closest, uh, a Sanghealy can do is to, um, like keep their lower mandibles together. And yeah, when they speak, and even so, they couldn't, you know, speak clearly at all. Yeah, I think that that might be from the Kilo 5. I don't remember if that was detailed along with how they had a really hard time with P sounds. So it's Phyllis. Yes. Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, and then one of the other details we get at this point is that um, the Keepers actually allow humans into their ranks. There's actually a couple who come up. Uh, in the course of the book, which is an interesting detail and I think helps uh, distinguish the Keepers from all the other dime-a-dozen covenant sects we see. After. And it also speaks, I think, makes Castor at least more sympathetic in that he is still believing in the Forerunner's divinity, um, but he's not such a jerk about it. <laughs> well, it seems to be, uh, I guess what a true representation of what the covenant wanted to be, I guess. I mean, until they hit, hit humanity, the covenant pretty much either coerced or invited every race to, to join. And, uh, I mean, you're seeing Castor, you know, 
acknowledging that okay humanity you know they you can have the same goals and it doesn't matter what race it is so yeah and i think it's also especially in science fiction there's the tendency to i guess make the alien species come around to humans way of thinking and not vice versa like um you don't have in the star trek series you don't have any humans trying to act vulcan um so it's nice to see that with the revelation that oh there were these ancient aliens that built these giant crazy stuff uh to the the larger civilian population that some of them do buy into the same well they must have been gods i mean how else could they build this stuff so that was a nice detail um especially since uh, we've gotten through stuff like halo evolutions we know that there's still lots of uh I guess new agey spiritual beliefs at least um in 26th century humanity so it makes sense that some people would still go for the similar thing. Yeah and also in uh, I can't think of the name of the group that was in Hunt the Truth the second season. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, uh yeah. Guys led by the Joker. <laughs> I don't remember. That's yeah, I think Sapient Sunrise or something yeah, like that, right? Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. I think that was it. Yeah, so that's a nice touch. Um, and so the they uh, find that the uh, there's a human landing craft, a Turaco or something like that, um, something we'd never heard before. Uh, but they realize that's actually a Dark Moon um, ship, which leads into the intrigue there. Um, meanwhile, looking for the admiral or her family, they investigate the grotto, uh, and then we get. For the second time, uh, time shenanigans with foreigner stuff, although it's not crystals this time. Mm. Um, which was which is interesting that they basically uh, time's passing much longer inside the grotto than without, uh, and they they explained that this was because it was uh, basically the foreigner equivalent of a prison. You'd stick people there uh, and give them time to think about what they've done, literally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it makes a little more sense why the librarian just locked her husband up in a crypto and thought everything would be fine after thousands of years. It, yeah, it was it was that where um, the the time shift there that I that I cut just a like lack of smoothers and you know yeah they have this subcutaneous injection to keep them longer for it's kind of that part that I but they've been in there for that yeah, long it, yeah. still, it felt a little hinky i guess but uh well i guess that's probably like that's this is the point in the book where they bring up that they have the subcutaneous delivery devices uh, for the smoothers so maybe <laughs> that was the author's note like wait they've been in there how long like we need to have some way of making sure that they don't go off their meds because that's not where we want this book to go right yeah actually i, th I think this is actually the third time we've had uh like time issues i mean there was the crystal that was in First strike. Uh, first strike, and it it wasn't it was it a crystal in last light? I, I can't remember if that was a crystal that caused Fred to like lose time, or was it just something similar to what we're seeing here? That's actually a good point. I'm not sure if it's intended to be a similar thing going on. Um, the the you brought up the smoothers as the thing that seemed hinky for me. The question I had was why would you make this place your base 
because it seems like from an operations standpoint, you don't want time to be traveling by happening much slower in parts of your base and not in others. Even if they're they're mostly only using it as a prison, since apparently communication does not work going in and out for obvious reasons, that seems like a really terrible idea. Weren't oh. they led to put the base there? That wasn't they were. Their that's, that's, so. that's what we've, we, we find out that Intrepid Eye has been uh, contacting Caster and sort of pushing him around. She's using him as well as Dark Moon for things. But that still seems like a terrible idea. Yeah. Maybe maybe she had her reasons, but I don't think they made the conscious choice, at least from what we're told. Well, Caster, you gotta sometimes push back on the the divine revelations you get because sometimes they don't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, the whole blind faith thing. Like, uh how did that work out for you the last time? Something yeah. something mysterious ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it comes out that basically the events of this book still don't uh, push Caster out of that mindset, so we'll see what happens. But um, but it's also ultimately really fortunate for Ferret Team because that lets them find uh, the Admiral, and everyone's dead, um, but she quickly realizes that they were killed somewhere else um, and kind of disemboweled and then placed in the foreigner prison. Uh, so they drag them all out uh, and... In the meantime, everyone's been distracted trying to get into the Kigyar ship and find the nukes. Um, and that also gives the Silent Joe, which is the ship that Blue Team is on, time to arrive. And so Blue Team basically rockets down uh, and helps out, and there's a firefight. Basically, everyone gets out. It's okay. <laughs> One of the things with the Silent Joe and Blue Team and like with Fred, I think that the interactions between Fred and Lopez are kind of interesting. I mean, they went from highly antagonistic in Last Light and to, um, you know, kind of in a way grudgingly working together. And then, um, if I remember correctly, there was a point in time where they were going to either call off the mission or essentially do a massive assault and Fred was of the opinion it's like no we have to trust Lopez and the ferrets mm-hmm. um, I, I kind of like to see it, it puts a little bit more of a human face on Spartan 2's um, which I know some people aren't a big fan of but it's it's just interesting you know knowing well they two follow, different, they follow two orders different. but they aren't automatons right um, yeah so the, they push back a lot um with uh, the Silent Joe's commander. Um, they, they have some friction there. Um, so we rev- at this point, they reveal that the Keepers and Dark Moon have all been set up uh, according to Intrepid Eye's plan. She's really annoyed that, once again, they end up nuking the Keeper base and destroying a foreigner relic, which she's really upset about. But at this point, she should pretty much realize that's what humans do. <laughs> We're not great at keeping foreigner stuff together. Mm-hmm we don't understand it, we're going to hit it with the biggest freaking rock we can find. Do we have a tally of all the shit that we've destroyed since the franchise started? Because <laughs> that would be a very long destroyed list. So, so all right, well, well, let's, let's pull this down. So we've got... We've One got, Halo ring. No, no, starting first, we've got uh, okay. the the foreigner ship under reach. We use the knowledge oh, yeah. there to lead us to the Halo, which we promptly blow up. Mm-hmm. We blow up the foreigner crystal. Okay. We 
damage, but don't actually destroy Delta Halo. We damage. We tried our best. Um, no, I thought. But we don't it, actually blow it up. No, it, no. It, we, we it was. Wreck it, it became but, flood infested, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's ruining yeah. the neighborhood. But it, well, it was infested before we got there. Okay, true, true. All right, so, so I guess we can call a mulligan on that one. Okay. Installation 05, not our fault, even when the Covenant glass it. <laughs> um, <laughs> we destroy the new ring at the Ark, damage the Ark. Well, yeah. We destroy um, not the absolute record, but uh, the whatever it is in the tie-in comic book uh, not Bloodlines, um, Helljumper. Helljumper. Oh, There's yeah. the, okay. the, the Knowing, one. which looks like the giant monitor in cold storage, but says, oh, yeah. Actually, that one's great because it basically tells them to blow him up. That's the best part. They're like, oh, if you don't want the Covenant to use this to destroy you, you have to blow me up. And so they do. Uh... I mean, Onyx kind of gets destroyed, but then it turns into a giant solar system-sized installation. So, uh, what was really. the Shield World in Halo, Halo Wars? Oh yeah, Halo Wars Shield World gets destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, Jewel destroyed Requiem, so we we can't be held responsible for that. Yeah, we don't drive them to it technically. Like we're guilty by association. Uh, I'm sure that everyone else would have liked keeping Requiem around to plunder. So I don't think we drove into it. What else am I forgetting? Oh, we don't destroy the line installation in Bloodlines, as far as I remember. Oh, but the the Didact ship is a big massive thing, isn't it? Oh, that's true. We do nuke yeah. the Didact ship. Well, but the, do we count his, Mantle's approach and the composer as two different items, or are we just counting that as yeah, one? Yeah, well, you you could have you buy have to one count get that. one free. <laughs> well, we're we're responsible for destroying those, so I guess those count separate. Whereas the Forerunner fleet on the Shield World would not count as separate. Okay. All right. Anything we have. Anything else we've destroyed? Uh, well, no, we we just seriously damned. Was it zero three that has the that was in um, escal in the escalation comics, or was that zero seven? Yeah, no, that's zero that's, seven. No, that's zero three. In, so in about Halo this mantle of responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why that's why Intrepid Eye is right. We have to be trained not to break things because man, we just do it all the time. <laughs> I wouldn't trust us with with new toys after this point. You know, after the first couple of toys, no, that's it. You're not getting any more until you learn to, you know, not destroy them. Well, they they have not they have not yet managed to destroy Trevelyan. Although, considering how massive Trevelyan is, it would be. I'm pretty sure we're incapable of destroying it. And we have not yet blown up Infinity and its foreigner stuff there. So I feel like that's where we are in the wins column. To be fair, we're at the state now where. Cortana's basically taking our toys off us. Yeah, because we well, can't be trusted. So obviously, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> we give you amazing power, and what do you do? First thing you do is blow it up. That's what happens when the military runs everything. Military dictatorships lead to blowing up all your fancy tech. It's just unfortunate. So would we? Okay, are we considering the arc, uh, the lesser arc, a wash on that? Then I mean, it's... it rebuilt itself, so yeah, we did not irrevocably destroy it tried though we really yeah. gave it a good shot at trying it we didn't really try so much as we were totally fine with it being collateral damage mm. and I, I guess we'll see if uh if anders manages to blow up that halo she made 
so we can destroy Installation 04 for the third time. Okay, but anyway. Yeah. So we, we agree <laughs> that we've got some trust issues to work out with Intrepid Eye. Um, but we return to her, basically, those dastardly ferret team have accelerated her plans, so she basically has to outright uh, blackmail Craddock. Um And we get what I believe is the first in the... the the uh the halo series uh the threesome <laughs> that she interrupts uh, uh, and basically <laughs> which i was like wait what like uh, dude like you know that this ai is spying on you and yet you still have done nothing to stop her like, you turned off your compad and thought that was enough like i guess it makes sense that because she picked him and he was stupid but that's really stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he must have known somebody to get to the position where he was at because there's no way he would have. Well, yeah, it. like you, we can chalk intrepid eyes machinations up for how he gets promoted from the Argent Moon up to, to top dog, but yeah. how he got to the Argent Moon in the first place seems questionable. Maybe he was sleeping his way there because apparently he's an idiot, but a good lay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they... There's with the the hostages from the grotto. Uh, we get more CSI stuff. Although at this point, it um, I I appreciate that Denning's trying to do some uh, investigative stuff. Um, there's more Batman in here than recent Batman movies, but it gets kind of wonky, like how they're able to tell, especially with they use uh, lividity, which is basically body temperature to figure out when they could have been killed, which again seems to be totally useless because you don't know how long they were in the foreigner grotto and so that would add hours and they try and say oh well it was only this long but that seems like it would have instantly ruined everything and they also it seems like there's a lot of planets that are really close they mention only a few days away to hours away and that seems really small for what we know of the halo universe yeah i think i I think we just you got to kind of chalk that up to yeah, okay, uh, we just need this for the story and kind of go from there. Yeah, but um, they basically realize um, their organs were actually what uh, they were after, um, not the Admiral and her family uh, themselves for any political reason. Uh, it turns out they were sole survivors of some terrible outbreak, um, and the evidence leads them back to Gao, Veda's old home, uh, where they find that there was a biological laboratory working on something, but it's totally been destroyed. Um, and they do some, some, I, I appreciate that, uh, Veda gets some time, despite the, the CSI stuff kind of coming off as CSI in the worst way of kind of hand wavy, hand waving magic. Um, she basically tricks the, the survivors of the, the base to tell her what she wants, um, which I thought was nice. We're used used to everything getting solved by guns. It's nice to have mm-hmm. uh, wit come out ahead. And that ends up leading everyone to Meridian. Um, and at this point, everyone's congregated. Um, Intrepid Eye sends the Dark Moon people to fetch the organs that she can use to make the terrible... Uh, terrible... Um, well, I guess they've already made the terrible... Uh, biological agent but they need the organs to try and make the countermeasure otherwise and this is the other kind of 
darkly amusing thing is that everyone takes it for a given that no one would use this biological weapon without a way to stop it which given people's track records at making terrible decisions seems unlikely (laughs) someone would be desperate enough i think it's intrepid eye who's you know doing it just to the small group of people who would would think of it are the ones who would she would deem say those are the true people who are worthy of inheriting the mantle yeah which i'm not sure i bought as reasoning but again I, I don't buy. I think she's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, no, I don't. I don't buy that logic. But okay. Yeah. Um, but basically, everyone, including uh, Castor and the keepers of the One Freedom and Ferret team, end up on uh, Meridian, and we meet uh, Governor Sloan in his prime, still naked, still annoyingly obstinate. They end up. He basically extracts. Um, intrepid eye basically bribes him by creating a corporation that'll funnel money to uh meridian so that's a nice detail about how he's still um dedicated to the people there well was it also brought out that it wasn't a it wasn't it a um an insurrectionist that they used uh, his brain to create the ai yeah that, that we get Did the I detail yeah, he was a insurrectionist spy was his his donor okay it's a nice little detail. And so they they end up having a fight on uh, Pinnacle Station, uh, and everyone ends up retreating to the surface of the Glasslands, um, and everyone uh, groups up at this mine, where at this point, Ferret Team still is not entirely certain um, who the the good guys are, or if the humans are good guys or bad guys, and they pretty much only find out when... Uh, the dark moon people basically jump out using some mining equipment and try and run them down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then we have, which I think was really interesting. The, basically the final, the final action sequence of the book happens inside basically an ore hold of a vehicle, um, where (laughs) Veda is kind of hidden, uh, with her SPI armor, um, that's covered in mud, so it's not quite working in close quarters with Castor, who is basically like sticking his hand through the cage and throwing out humans in front of him. And he ends up wounded. They jump out, uh, and Veda, who has gotten a bomb, basically decides to blow up the ship and the Dark Moon people, including Craddock. So. Sorry for him and his philandering ways. <laughs> and decides to blow it up, destroying the organs, and thus ostensibly uh, preventing the threat of the disease. And uh, once again, <laughs> uh, Castor ends up alone, possibly wounded, possibly dead, but still determined to keep on trucking. And I like that they they explain from his point of view, he really has no clue what happened. Um, but ultimately, he's like, well, this human blew up the thing with the dangerous bioweapon, so I assume she's maybe an ally, but I just gotta find a way off this rock. And that seems like a really good short story, because I want to know how (laughs) Caster, a giant, heavily armored and hurt brute, manages to get off Meridian. Yeah, I mean, especially since he's still holding to the the fact of the Oracle um, you know, Intrepid Eye, who, who he sees as an Oracle, you know, telling him what to do, even though the Oracle pretty much abandoned him 
at one point, you know, yeah. just before they got to Meridian, if I remember right. Yeah, but he, but that's the whole, the whole problem with his mindset is they think it's because he failed that she's no longer talking to him. He's not, unfortunately, not able to put all the pieces together. Um, and Intrepid Eye, for her, uh, her effort basically takes a memo that in classic Oni fashion says, all right, this bioweapon thing, we're going to destroy it and kill everyone involved. And she changes it to say, actually, let's put this off the books and have them continue developing the bioweapon. So we get the explanation for pretty much what leads up to the events of Halo 5, where containment failure happens, whether it was was Intrepid Eye's plan or an accident or something, um, and it kills everybody there. And it's another cautionary tale of how you can't have Black Ops bureaucracy because it seems like all it would have taken to figure out Intrepid Eye's check is just someone to reread that order and notice, hey, that's not what I said at all. (laughs) Especially since it was an order from Osman. Yeah, so Osman's just not cleaning up after herself and look what happens. Yeah. The other thing is how many different AI were actually in this? Um, you have the Intrepid Eye. You had Damon. Uh, yeah, Damon um, gets injured at the end. We're not sure if he makes it or not because Fred's armor gets trashed. Um, there's yeah. So I think there's three. Uh, hold on here. Intrepid Eye, Rooker, who's the uh, AI on Argent Moon. Uh, Sloan. Oh, there's Sloan. indeed uh, Sloan. So four, and then. There is the AI on the um, on the Trakau. Tr- oh yeah, the, I think the it's Ariel or whatever it is. Turaco. Yeah. and then there was one called Oriel, the one that was negotiating with Sloan. Or, or did I just misread that? Oh, and yeah, that yeah, that's actually Intrepid that's, Eye is an well, alias. that that is that's the the interesting thing is that Oriel is Intrepid Eye, but basically. Um, and a difference from what we normally see with Cortana or BB, uh, where they split off shards. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm pretty sure my take from reading it was that Oriel didn't actually realize she was a split from Intrepid Eye. It was kind of like a plausible deniability thing. She's running mm-hmm. everything off, like in her own compartmentalized thing. So in case that uh, okay. shard was compromised, there's nothing that leads back to Intrepid. Um, so that was an interesting detail. Yeah, I just uh, going back over it. I'm like, wait a minute. There was a lot of AI in this. Yeah, there were. Now that you mention it. Um, other little miscellaneous notes I have from the ending. Um, so Ferret Team goes off to finish their training because there's something big coming, uh, as Osmond says. Um, we get the name for the the giant gyroscopic Spartan suit up systems. It's the Brocker or something. However you say that. Norse name, um, but that gets a name, uh, and then Fred and Lopez share a tender moment with him <laughs> naked and her hugging him. So love yeah. could be in the air. Uh huh. Which I don't know how to feel about that. I I mean, when it was in um, Contact Harvest at you know the end with Johnson, okay, you know it's. It was a little odd to find that in a Halo novel. <laughs> then in this one, you had the threesome. You're just like, um, okay. And then the end of that, I'm like, I would imagine it. It 
probably wouldn't be too odd, you know, for for Fred, I guess, because obviously the well, they no were all Spartans it, theoretically, right? And he, but, she's a civilian. But, yeah, but it just it's like that kind of stuff just seems a little out of place <laughs> to me. But yeah, I think it's I think it's better than to me. Contact Harvest is probably my favorite Halo novel, but the the sex scene at the end is absolutely terrible. And it's yes. compounded by the fact that I still remember um, them talking about it in a Bungie podcast, and they have Luke like bring up Luke Smith bring up, oh well, there's some sexy times in this, right? And Joe Staten says, yeah, but I wanted to like stay away from the Harlequin romance stuff, like so I like had certain words I wouldn't use and all these things. I'm like, well, Joe, I get that you tried that, but you totally failed because it does come <laughs> off like like. Sergeant Johnson is unprepared for the, the the excessive thrusting and like made a tactical error. That's my favorite line. <laughs> tactical error. Jesus <laughs> and actually, that's my favorite because it's great on the, oh. the audiobook. The guy says, Johnson knew, Avery knew at once he'd made a tactical error. And it's just like, oh, man. <laughs> to the point where sometimes I'm thinking about that, like, just out, like outside of hail, like just a tactical error, huh? Um, <laughs> make sure to to use that anytime you need to cover up your own delinquencies. I made a tactical error. This usually <laughs> never happens. Um, I thought I thought Marines were always supposed to be prepared. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, he knows what the ladies like too well. Um, yeah, I guess so. So I, I think I think in this book it it worked a little better, uh, especially since they didn't really spend any time with the, the menage a trois of actually with <laughs> sexy times. And it was more just, holy crap. Like, why is your compact going off? This is really awkward, dude. What the hell? Well, it, it wasn't even his compact. It was, it was, it was, yeah, one, it was, of it was one of the girls compads. That actually, well, sudden... So that's the, that's the thing I, I went back and reread to note. And I wasn't sure if this was intentional. Uh, it was just coincidental or it was uh, intentional. I don't think they actually um, stated the genders of the other people. You know what? You're right. They didn't. Yeah, I even looked later on. Those those two people are the people who are fortunate enough not to get murdered by Oni, and I guess they died when the Argent Moon failsafes failed later. But they they managed to survive and continue heading up uh, the bioweapon program at the end, thanks to Intrepid Eye. Um, but yeah, that was one of those. So I guess that was uh, possibly a slight way of Denning being inclusive and progressive. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, any other notes about the book overall or the ending? Uh, like I said, I think it's probably the uh, the ending part. I think is what really kind of makes me think of the links between Intrepid and uh, I and Cortana, which leads me to wonder: Did does Intrepid I have anything to actually do with Cortana acting the way that she is, even though that's like that's all well that's all a wag it does because because uh denning is not killing off antagonists it does make me wonder um whether or not intrepid eye is going to come up either in another novel dealing with the created story arc or in the games itself um like because obviously you think Cortana and her have similar aims and similar methods, but there is no way uh, Intrepid Eye would be fine with a human AI running the show, I think. 
Um, so that would be an interesting matchup. Yeah, and I get that's like I said, that's one of the things made me think that is the idea of the created something that Intrepid Eye came up with as another test for humanity. That would be for all the. I think personally, my my theory at this point is it's totally Cortana. She's not really rampant. This is just mm-hmm. terrible, terrible misplaced priorities on her part. But it would be for all the people who think that it's actually the didact pulling the strings or something. Having it be Intrepid Eye would be an interesting uh, twist. Or I suppose you could say, um, even if Cortana wasn't in her plan, Intrepid may not be. Uh, opposed to her just because she figures this is a way of testing humanity uh, that maybe mm-hmm. she didn't foresee, but she can still see working towards her ends, um, which would be interesting. Yeah, it'd be a, it would be an interesting twist. I mean, I don't know how people would take it, but it would be an interesting way to just, instead of just saying, oh, it's a, it's a rampant piece of Cortana, it's okay, no, it was... Cortana manipulated it, probably her lowest point, to further this other goal. Again, I don't know how people would take that, but well, they take it badly because they'll take yes, everything badly. <laughs> but <laughs> at a point, <laughs> there's no pleasing all the fans. No, nope. that's for sure. But it would be an interesting um, element, and I do, I am interested in. While I maybe not as positive as you, definitely more positive than you, Danny, about this book. Um, I'm interested in seeing where it goes um, because this still does, this is a little better than, I guess, the Kilo 5 trilogy in that there's a little more, this is a couple, almost a year after the events of Halo 3, so there's a little more space for things to happen. But we still got this big gap of time um, for Intrepid Eye and Caster uh, where we don't know what happened to them before we get to the point we're at currently in the fiction. So a lot could happen. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if we get a follow-up, uh, and if so, when and where it leads us to. I don't, know, I, I don't like the fact that we're stuck behind the games. I... Well, and we don't know when we're getting Halo 6 too. It does seem like we've kind of gotten back into the same problem we had to a degree when Bungie was making games and that they can't especially since Halo I mean we don't know the chronology for Halo 5 to Halo 6 but Halo 1, 2, and 3 all take place in such a compressed amount of time you do definitely do have to work around it I brought this up uh, we were having a conversation with um, a couple of lore people on Twitter uh, like Toa Freak and such and uh, with Halo Wars 2 we've now officially hit the same year um, that the return from Halo Legends takes place so it it was, I was feeling like, man, I feel old. Because I remember when we were like, oh, man, this is like 12 years out or something. This is so far away. Like, and now we've caught up to it. Sounds like time for a retcon. <laughs> well, I don't think there's... I was thinking about that. There's nothing in um, the return that specifically, uh, specifically contradicts anything we know. Um, I mean, stuff with escalation... Uh, sort of buttress the idea that the brutes are still at least broadly dysfunctional and fighting amongst themselves and that the elites haven't really gotten along with them. Um, yeah, but there's still the, there's still a lot of like, well, like the, what year was the ending of reach set at? No, the happy Ooh, the narrated of reach. Yeah. Check. What was, what was that? Yeah. That's, that's 2560 something. Um, by 25, all right. Uh, 2589 is when, 
uh, the epilogue to Reach happens by 26, 2610. Okay. That is when um, we get some details in the Legendary Edition, ah, the legendary edition um, of Halsey's Journal. The, the okay. supplementary stuff explaining it uh, this takes place in 2610. So they have slightly more room now. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, for, they have where they a have lock to be. Of, theoretically up to 30 years where they could take the creative arc. I doubt they're going to do that, but they've got room to play. And I mean, that's where I definitely see what you mean by where they're limited um, with telling stories contemporaneously with the created arc. However, there is like with this book, there is so much ground that they can still cover in that period between Halo four. And I guess, um, I mean, really aside from this book and stuff around here and, uh, Hunters in the Dark, there's really nothing in that 25 or yeah, 2555, 2556 uh, period of time. So they can still do a just, lot of just stuff there. yeah, just just minor things like it happens in the books only going back to the arc and all that stuff. <laughs> well, the, the only reason I can think of for that is, is in a way, um, I think 343 was kind of starting behind the eight ball a little bit when it comes to some of that um i mean bungie wanted to tell their story their way and i don't think they liked other people telling their story so i think it was you know 343 was filling in where they could until they got control of the property um i do think that <clears throat> in some ways they need to just choose a path and go <laughs> as in and i'm talking from the lore and then also game mechanics but they just need to pick a path and go with it and just tell good stories. Um, I think they've done a decent job at good stories so far, but their stories all need to be good. It does, they don't have to be overly complex. They just need to be solid stories told well. All right. Anything else you want to say about Retribution before we close? I assume, Pens, that you are fine with a follow-up. I am fine with a follow-up. I'm, I'm fine with a follow-up. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to, like to see... Um, more Denning stuff. I think he does a writes interesting stories. I like that they they're they've gotten at this point they have a flavor separate from a lot of the other series. Right. Um, so I hope we get a trilogy out of him. And I I think the other thing is is there's characters there that have the potential to be a lot more interesting, at least from my perspective. And uh, you know, obviously, you know, I, like like you said, Caster is someone that I. would you know, despite the fact that it's kind of an old, old covenant thinking, he's still an interesting character. Um, you know, the the interactions with Lopus and the Ferret team and and whatnot. You know, those are I, I find them interesting because uh, I, I take a Spartan threes. <laughs> I take an ebook of of uh, Caster getting off Meridian ebook. I take that any day of the week. We do we mm-hmm. do a the, do a dialogueless uh, comic like. Uh, Halo Evolutions, or I mean, Halo Graphic Novel. Although it did feel like Caster was like at the very end of the episode, I'll get you next time, Ferret. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> well, I, I like uh... that's that's what I find interesting is that, um, especially for a Halo novel, like everyone ends basically intrepid. I knows everything. Nobody else knows exactly what the hell went on. <laughs> They, they, uh, the caster doesn't exactly understand what's going on from the UNSC side of things. The ferret team 
thinks it understands what's going on and doesn't. Um, so it's it's interesting in that things don't get wrapped up uh, neatly, and they also don't have a real resolution. Um, all right. <laughs> I guess that's all for this episode. Uh, thanks again to Pens for joining us. Again, thank you for having me. All right. Uh, and you can find uh, the show notes for this episode will be at forwarduntodawn.com slash fudcast23. Uh, you can visit our main site for more articles and podcasts or subscribe via iTunes uh, to get podcasts in your media player of choice. Or you can follow us on Twitter at YouTube with the handle Forward Dawn because people took Forward Unto Dawn and it's really annoying. <laughs> Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.